about Rolf Harris. Susie, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Stephen, all the way from sunny Australia. Ah, oh, Robin, I'm in northwest England. It is cold, it is dark, it is miserable. So thank you for just uh, rubbing that in there, Susie. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> it's very hot here, very hot, very humid. And, uh, you know, it sounds really nice, but 33-degree days when you sleep with your air conditioning on and, and sweat while you're asleep. Oh, yeah, a bit, bit too, too much. <laughs> <laughs> for sure uh, maybe before we, we um get into your, your story maybe you could just uh, let our listeners and viewers know exactly what it is you do what, what keeps you busy oh look well several things keep me busy I've been um for 40 years I've been a film and television hair and makeup artist and special effects artist in the entertainment world I'm also a motivational speaker and a, um, a three-time author so far once you start writing books, you get you get caught right into it. Actually, start putting things down on pen to paper, so to speak. Uh, so I um I work as a, a speaker and I work as a a coach. Uh, I coach people how to um it's called presentation skills coaching. How to be on camera and how to speak on camera and how to find your story, because I work with a lot of people as a coach um, who have stories and we all have stories. I work with uh, victim survivors of sexual assault. And uh, I've been doing this for a while now because of uh, the way li- the, the path life has taken me on, Stephen. Nice. Something jumped out of, out of me there being a massive movie nerd and this, this idea of special effects makeup. What, what kind of things were you responsible for? Because that really, really, fan- you know, tickles my fancy quite a lot. It always has. Oh, I love, um, look, I like doing pretty, but I really like doing ugly. So I like making it look like you've gone through the windscreen of a car. Um, I do a lot of blood and guts and gore. Yes, um, all the good stuff. Really fun, you know. There's nothing like a good blood pump and a skin explosion. Beautiful. Uh, this music I my ears. Ears as well. Oh, uh, cool. Really. So I make people into clean skins and get flown all around Australia to do that, which is fun. So it's uh, having a career for 40 years. Uh, the only way you have longevity in that career is to zigzag creatively you know, with what you do. Uh, I have a really fun gig every year at a private school and um, it's part of the arts in the school and it's uh, teaching them how to do blood and guts and wounding because bruising, creating a bruise is all about colour, you know. So it's all about learning how to do colour and how to do fresh bruises and weak old bruises and what cuts look like. So I have like hundreds of kids within a week running around the playground with um, bleeding eyeballs and gashes <laughs> and split necks and they have an absolute blast. Sometimes I get complaints from the parents, but, you know, it just depends on the wound. And, but that's really wonderful. It's, a, it's really fun that I do that every year. I would. It's love kids that. doing that. Oh, you would. It's fun. So much. Once Forget kids. I'd, I'd love. I'd love. That. I still make. I still occasionally make my own like latex appliances for Halloween and, and things like that. It's so there much fun. Yeah, yeah, I, I work with latex with the kids and teach them how to use latex and how to do the skin that comes off. We do, uh, you know, rotting flesh zombies so they can take bites out of each other with latex. And once you know, as you know, you've got a thing for latex. Once you know how to use, that sounded rude, but you know what I mean. I was going to say, let's just be uh, clear here. Not necessarily a thing for latex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can create so many things with latex, uh, and you know the really the only thing that's holding you back is your imagination. Yeah, I feel like I've derailed this conversation a little bit with my my pet interest for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I could I could speak to you for for hours about your work there, definitely. But obviously, one of the things that really kind of unfortunately uh, in hindsight links Australia and the UK is is the the prominence uh, of Rolf Harris. 
as well. I mean, for people who don't know who, who he, I mean, did he have much of a career in Australia? I've never really looked at it from that side before. Um, not as much as in the UK. So Australia kicked him out. Um, yeah, you guys knew better. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, but when I was younger, um, I, gr- I grew up watching Ralph Harris uh, with his wobble board and even in black and white TV because I'm that, just that young. Uh, and uh, he was very big in, in Australia. But I've realised in the UK he had a lot of um, children's shows. So a lot of adults yeah. over there have grown up with the dream, the childhood dream of being a guest on one of his shows, on one of his kids' shows or his animal shows. So I, I feel that the influence that Rolf Harris has had on society as a whole uh, with our countries is um, that he was in the public light as a really wonderful, safe uncle kind of figure, someone that's talented and artistic that you'd really want to have as your next-door neighbour or you'd, you'd, you'd trust your kids with, you know, or that you wanted to be with and you wanted to meet so I feel that um, in the UK, the, the influence of Rolf Harris and the things that we have discovered that he's done has had a, a really profound effect on yeah. many people. That, that was a perfect description of the man and, and his influence. And it seems to me that he kind of transcends multiple generations in the UK. I mean, I'm 39, so I got, I mean, my parents knew his music. That was that was foreign to me. I wasn't really aware of that. I saw more of his children's TV presenting stuff. And then as I got a bit older, he'd do more serious, like animal hospital type things. And he became, I would say, a national treasure in this country we kind of celebrated him and he was looked upon favorably this idea of like the nation's uncle that you said that that's a perfect description of him but obviously now we know we know better uh and i just when did you first meet him how did you manage to you know arrive in rolf harris's orbit so to speak uh, in 1986, when I was um, 23, I was his makeup artist when uh, for a day when he came to Australia uh, for uh, for some sort of program that he did uh, then. So I was doing what's called a primo. So it's like a series of um, uh, almost like a commercial, if you like, for what he was doing in Australia. And uh, I was excited. I was a new, newly minted makeup artist. I'd only been doing it for nearly three years. Uh, and he was the biggest star that I'd ever worked for. And I was quite excited to work with him because he's, you know, Ralph Harris, the uncle and the national treasure, as you said. He was the biggest star back then to have worked through, walked through the doors of Channel 7 Studios. So he was given the red carpet treatment by all the powers that be, you know, all the people that ran the studio back then. Um, As his makeup artist, um, I was very surprised to uh, find that he was not just a touchy-feely person, but that he liked to touch in public me with immunity uh, and felt that, uh, he was one of these people who used his power, his money, his position to take advantage. And he had a reputation back then, which I was unaware of when I worked for him, of um, sexually molesting makeup artists. Because most of the time we were young, uh, back in the 80s, women, women did not have the rights. So you're like mm-hmm. 39, I'm, I'm nearly 62. And there's a difference with how women were treated back in the 80s. Uh, there's a lot of times that men just decided, and he wasn't the only one, that they wanted to touch you on the bottom. If they wanted to give you a cuddle and pull you in close and have a squeeze at the same time, they were kind of allowed to because women didn't have a voice back then. We didn't have the rights that women uh, of my age and younger and men have today, the right to actually be heard 
we weren't allowed to be heard. There, there, it was like not assault as far as um, the law was concerned for a man to actually touch you, feel you, you know, do whatever he wanted to you. On, on set um, that day, Ralph Harris couldn't keep his hands off my legs in particular. And uh, it started when I was in the makeup room in private with him. Uh, when I, I, I did his makeup for the first time and he ran, I was wearing kind of baggy shorts and he ran his hands up the leg of my shorts. And I was really surprised because, A, he was older than my father at the time. Sorry to, I mean, how, how old were you at this time again? Sorry, just remind me. I was, um, I was 23, but 23 right. back in the 80s is totally different to 23 now. You know, I, young people today, you I, have the I see internet. 23 as very young now anyway. Yeah. Still, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't have, we weren't exposed to life, the life that everybody's exposed to now. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, you know, we, I was watching PG and M-rated things that were so clean on television. Mm. We weren't exposed. I didn't even know what the word pedophile meant. Didn't know what that meant. I was raised in a family with watching the village people and I didn't know they were gay. They were just <laughs> fucking eyes, you know. So it, was, it was very naive time. Very sheltered, sheltered upbringing, though. Yeah. <laughs> I was very sheltered, you know. I was brought up by, you know, a Sunday school teacher, you know, who was, make sure you're a virgin before, you, before you're married. It's like, okay, daddy. So but I mean, this. I mean, just to, to juxtapose this a little bit, because you're a woman of a, a certain age, obviously a young lady. Uh, you, you know, there, there is an age that young women hit that attracts male attention and a lot of it unwanted. So that's that's hard to navigate for a young woman, regardless. But then you throw into the mix this ultra famous, well respected individual who people will seemingly just cover for or turn a blind eye. That really makes things a hell of a lot more complicated, doesn't it? more difficult rather it did actually it made it very difficult um every time I went in the studio and I, there was a full crew in the studio that were all men back then because women's women pretty much did wardrobe and makeup they hadn't crossed over into cameras and sound and lighting then it was still a very male dominated uh industry and uh in front of everybody every time I would go to powder his nose or which is what we used to call it uh he would touch me uh I wasn't wearing um I was wearing modest clothes, you know, a T-shirt and, and baggy shorts. And the, t the shorts had a rip in it and he would try and jam his hand in the rip of my pants. Nobody stopped him. Um, when I first uh, got into set, the director at the time was around his vintage age-wise and they were just discussing my body and my legs as I was standing there like a piece of meat. And, again, you, you were programmed as a young woman back then to cop it on the chin and just deal with it and you'd smile and, you know, no, no, no. But as the day went on, uh, when not one person stopped him touching me, at one stage he grabbed my belt because we back in the 80s we wore these big belts that kind of hung down at the front. He grabbed my belt and he tried to crotch grind me in front of everyone. I'm just trying to powder his nose and take the sweat off his face. So after a while I, I actually felt that if I, you couldn't say anything back then. The number one mm. rule of the makeup artists is don't upset the talent. We're the ones that invade your space. We touch you. We do your face. You know, we're invading your aura. Us and if you don't have your own wardrobe, it's just us that are touching you. Um, and that gives you a, not an intimacy but a closeness to the talent. You know, if you're sweating, I'm going to make sure you're not sweaty. If you've got something in your teeth, I'm going to make sure. So it's my job to make sure you look the best and feel good as well. If I had said anything to him, and as I mentioned earlier, women back then did not have the rights to go, F off, mate, get your hands <laughs> off me. 
Um, I would have lost my job, my new career. Um, I felt responsible for everybody in the studio that was there. Uh, I I got really bored. I was starting to get really bored with him touching me and very, very uncomfortable. And I moved to the back of the room and I thought, well, if he can't really see me, um, maybe he won't touch me. And he'd just kind of click his fingers. It was that I, I thought I, for a while there I thought this man thinks that the Hollywood casting couch is alive and well in his brain and it's not happening, sunshine, you know. Uh, it was that sort of constant touching every time I would do my job and I'm in a work environment. This is my job. I need to be treated with respect, not just by the person that I'm working with, but all the men around me who were also starstruck. Uh, and if any of them had uh, said anything back then in their defence, it could have been their job as well. Rolf Harris could have completely, um, what we call in Australia, had a dummy spit. If I had said anything, walked off set, I could have cost the, the, the station millions of dollars. So that responsibility was on me. Um, eventually um, it was upsetting me to the stage. We're talking hours this went on, so he touched me dozens of times. Um, I walked, I went outside the studio and I stayed outside the studio. There was one guy in there who was young like me and he knew that I was really uncomfortable and uh, he would come and get me when I, uh, like when Rolf started to really start to get shiny and sweat and uh, then I'd go back in and it's, he would still touch me. So I was very uncomfortable. I really felt that I was placed in a position that I shouldn't have been placed in. I didn't have the support of any of anybody that was around me who were, some of these men were old enough to be my father and mm. they should have stepped in but they did not because of the, the fame, the fortune, the power that this uh, entertainer represented, you know. At the end of the shift, um, there, was a, there was a cupboard opposite the studio door which was a broom cupboard and it was actually big enough for me to stand in and I ducked in there and I stood in the cupboard uh, so he wouldn't see me when he came out uh, because the makeup room that I made him up in in the very beginning, which had what his, his had his stuff in there, was small and tiny and I knew that if, without a shadow of a doubt, that if this man was going to touch me during my shift in front of everybody, that I was going to get full-on sexually assaulted when I was in a room alone with him because we'd always take their makeup off. Back then it was video and hot lights and the makeup was thick, but there was no way I was going near him. So I hid in the cupboard and it was, I could open it just to crack and I'd peer down the corridor and he waited outside the makeup room for me to come back just in case I guess I'd gone to the loo. And then the powers that be that I call them, the, the, they'd come down from upstairs to escort him out the door. So they did just that. They escorted him out the door of the studio and I'm still in the cupboard. And I stayed in the cupboard until I knew he was really gone because if I had come out, the corridor was all the way down to the front of the building and anybody would have seen me. I would have been exposed and I would have been forced back into my makeup room with that man uh, and he would not have not touched me because he'd been leading up to it all day, you know. He just, he... I knew. So to keep myself safe, I hid in a cupboard. And then when he'd gone and I really knew he'd gone, I came out of the cupboard so I'd be physically safe. Wow. So, I mean, not only did you have to endure that violation from him on a regular basis, it also created this climate of fear where you're literally hiding in closets to, to avoid his, his attention and his assault. So it's quite extraordinary. And I mean, and it makes perfect sense to me that obviously you 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 couldn't, speak out about it at the time there is so much riding on that 
professionally, financially, all on your shoulders un- unfairly. W- when did you start feeling comfortable about publicly saying that you were sexually assaulted by Rolf Harris? Well, the funny thing was, is um, I told everybody. I told everybody. <laughs> Good. Well, my parents and my friends knew who I was working with, so he was a big star for us. So what was Rolf like? He was a dirty old man. You know, he couldn't get yeah. me. Um, you know, I went uh, at the end of my shift when I knew it was safe, I went and spoke to the makeup artist who was in charge and she said, how's that? And I said, he's a dirty old man. He couldn't keep his hands off me all day. And she said to me, oh, I thought you knew. His nickname is the octopus. So I'm standing there feeling, to be quite honest, I felt betrayed by the woman um, who was in charge who had not given me a heads up because that would have been uh, at least uh, I would have known. I realised, and then she said to me that the, the powers that be upstairs have sent me a message uh, to commend me on how I'd conducted myself. I'm standing there thinking, but I haven't complained yet. And then I realised that they were all watching. Mm. They were all upstairs in the edit suite watching. So I knew that there was no protection in that studio at all. So I did not keep it a secret. I rang my best mates. I told them what happened because I was in shock. I, you know, this is a man who was um, I'd grown up with as a, as a little girl uh, and, as you said, really huge in the UK and in Australia and he was uh, unique and different like the trusted uncle um, and the trusted uncle couldn't keep his hands off me. Uh, so I was really, I was, I felt betrayed by, not just by him, but by my job, by the industry that I was working with, you know. I was left and, and in in hindsight I've looked back and wondered if I was chosen because of what I looked like, if he had a type. Uh, and I've realised that he has a type of MO because as, you know, everything went on, as the years went on, I realised when I did come out. So I, I told everybody, Stephen, I did, never kept it a secret. People would always ask me, who's the best and the worst person that you've worked with? Because I've worked with a lot of international stars. And uh, the best person would would change all the time because I was working with new people all the time. But the worst person was always him. And I knew that I would never work with him again. Like you couldn't pay me enough to have worked with him again. Uh, I would not have gone in a studio or a room with him. I would have refused point blank. So I did not keep it a secret. I feel it's, and I've learned in hindsight, that was one of the reasons why I was actually chosen by the judge in the court case of 2014 was because I didn't keep it a secret, because I never shut my mouth. You know, they sent police over to Australia to interview my friends of, you know, that time and what their recollection was of what I'd um, said to them uh, about, you know, my experiences. And we all took it very seriously. I didn't sit down and have a huddle with them beforehand or anything. It was um, they took it very seriously because when none of us ever thought that Rolf Harris would be taken down or found guilty because victims, survivors of historical crimes were never listened to. Mm-hmm. And this particular case and finding them finding Rolf Harris guilty and dozens and dozens of people, especially of women coming forward, makeup artists all over the world, many of whom have reached out to me with very, very similar stories. I've had journalists, female journalists reach out. Um, you know, I have many, many stories that, that you know, back up my story. However, I came forward, um, it's funny, when you speak about things and you come forward, sometimes you come forward for yourself, it takes a lot of bravery and sometimes you come forward for others. And I saw this interview um, here on A Current Affair by one of the women who had been sexually assaulted by him 
as a young girl when she was on a dancing troupe with him uh, and I was horrified and she was being really vilified by the press at that time because she'd come out and nobody believed anybody against Rolf Harris. We were all doing it for the money. There was none on offer, just so you know. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> women are all liars. We just want fame and fortune and really, you know, I would, would have picked a much better looking bloke to have broke me if I wanted that. Uh, so I watched this show and I knew that um, I could actually step up and help this woman. So I approached uh, by email. I, I kind of sent out emails to um, Scotland Yard and things in the UK and said the word the octopus, a few choice words, and they got back to me really quickly. And because I'd told my friends and because I hadn't kept a secret and uh, I became, I was asked by the judge to be the ba a bad character witness which is the, someone who, like, this is this is my day with Rolf Harris. This is what happened to me. Um, and this is how he behaved and this is how I behaved. To give you people an idea of what he was like in his working environment, you know. I got flown over to the UK in the biggest case of its kind that we'd ever seen with millions of people around the world hating us, hating the victims that came forward, not believing us. We were all given lifetime anonymity for our own safety. Uh, which means the press can't say what your name is or what you look like. I was called short and feisty, and I thought, I'm not short. <laughs> <laughs> you wear the feisty with pride, though, yeah? Totally. Totally. <laughs> my worry on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. That's amazing. I mean, I suppose just just thinking about this and trying to put myself in your shoes, I mean, going through something like that with a non-public figure would be horrible enough but i mean and then you have to kind of live a life where you're you're seeing this man be you know publicly worshipped in a way and, and and treated as tv royalty i mean how, how does that kind of thing make you feel when you have to you can't really avoid it necessarily because he's so much in the limelight it was disturbing um to say the least it was yeah. disturbing you know he ended up painting the queen and he was there, there was you know Rolf and it's like actually he's a dirty old man really um it, it was I, I tended to avoid like if if I saw his image I'd turn it off hmm. um you know I didn't I wasn't into any of his songs anyway I I just ignored it a lot of the time when you know things happen to you in life you package it away you deal with it the way you need to deal with it for your own self and you move on uh and a lot of the time like back then there you you dealt with stuff like this all the time. Lots of women, you know, from my mother and my grandmother's era were, were sexually assaulted all the time. Um, but when I was part of the case, though, it was um, I'd never thought of myself as being a sexual assault victim. Um, I knew I'd had a bad day with a dirty old man who couldn't keep his hands off me and he'd groped me. Um, being part of the case brought up childhood stuff for me because I actually I was actually sexually assaulted when I was 12 so all of a sudden all the stuff from my past and things that had happened to me as a teen came to the forefront of what I was doing being part of this case um, which was a really good thing because it was good for healing um, and because it was uh, there was a lot of middle-aged women standing in the courtroom uh, one after the other uh, giving their testimony of what it was like being in the presence of this person who had this false persona of this nice, friendly person but was in actual fact a sexual predator. 
it was like we were all in this, like my 12-year-old girl was there with a 15-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old and, and a 14-year-old and all our little girls had got our warrior on. And, you know, my little girl at 12 never said a word to anyone, but she was not going to let me shut up this time because I came forward for the women who were little girls. Um, I was quite fierce about that, watching this woman on the screen get crucified by the press, talking about her being sexually assaulted as, as a very young girl. I knew she wasn't lying because I'd worked with this man. And if I didn't come forward, I would have been, for me, I would have been a complete hypocrite because I'd never kept it a secret. So it was like my turn to back this woman. And then being part of the case, there were so many of them. So many women had been assaulted and so many had been assaulted as children by him and then to find out more intricate things about what he'd done as the you know as the case went on it 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 gives you the I, I wouldn't I never thought I was brave I just did it because it was like that had to be done you know I did it for justice people needed to know and I wanted these women to get their um the closure that they needed there was one lady in the courtroom who had who could not eyeball him at all she had to have a blanket put in front so she wouldn't see the packed courtroom or Rolf Harris in it. And she was, I think, 49 at the time. And um, I found that out before I actually went on and uh, it just it touched my heart. It's like, yeah. wow, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was very pleased to have been there. The press called me the strongest, um, the strongest witness for the prosecution because it was hard to actually fault me. Uh, and I was really, I've, it's opened lots of doors for me to be able to talk about this case, to encourage others to come forward in uh, when in their survivor journeys. You know, half the, half the when you, when bad things happen to us, we lock them inside and they end up being in like the dusty old suitcase in your mind and you sham, slam it shut and you get through life to a certain extent and usually around the 40s, 50s mark, if you haven't dealt with it, that suitcase is going to go Pow! And everything's going to come out and you're going to have to deal with it in midlife, whether you like it or not, so that you can move forward and reach your full potential. And we learn, you know, as we get older, as we're going through counselling or coaching for the things that have actually happened to us, we learn how to deal with things. And the only way we heal is when we speak. And you don't have to speak on a massive worldwide scale, scale like I have. You can just speak to a trusted person. And once you actually voice the things that have happened to you, it's the beginning of a healing journey. Uh, and that's really important for all of us to actually know, not don't keep it inside and don't stay quiet. And that case was amazing because it was the first of its kind that actually listened to victims of historical crimes. Uh, Operation New Tree in the UK took down massive amount of entertainers, men of that era and around that age who had taken carte blanche with their behaviour and been supported by the studios and the agencies behind them. They'd been given the green light. They were, you know, they were money makers. Whatever show they were on, you've got all the advertising revenue that happens with it. So they're money makers and they were let loose and people turned a blind eye back then uh, until they didn't. And now the people can come forward and because of this case, because they've actually listened to women and men and they've finally been heard rather than go away, darling, you know, just we're not going to talk to you. Now the world has changed and uh, that's amazing, um, amazing thing. And society took a long time to catch up. Society in the UK and in Australia took a long time to catch up with the fact that 
he is a sexual predator. So he didn't just assault the, um, this, this is where this is different to a lot of things because he was so famous and because he was so loved and because he was a national treasure of England, people were so disturbed that they hadn't seen that, that they'd had the wool, the proverbial wool pulled over their eyes, that they'd invited this man into their lounge room and they trusted him and they'd loved him. So it was like millions of people had been betrayed, the memories that they had of their youth. It was like, how can I have not seen this man was a predator? Uh, so there's so much guilt from and um um, and disgust from so like generations over there. Young people know who he is. Your generation, my generation, and older in the UK. There's a big, big uh, generational group that know who he is that feel betrayed by him. So Rolf Harris didn't just assault the people that he physically touched. He assaulted millions of people. By in their psyche. So eventually society actually caught up with the fact that, oh, the women weren't lying and he was guilty. In 2017, the Me Too hashtag went viral around the world and I still hadn't waived my anonymity because I wasn't ready yet. You know, I had a child who was a certain age in 2014. He was only 12 and I was going through my own stuff. So in 2019, I realised that I was ready and I, I came forward and waived my anonymity to talk about the Rolf Harris case uh, because Australia, things had slowed down in Australia as far as um, the Me Too movement and um, women's rights and being able to actually speak up and make change. And uh, I wanted to try and change the defamation laws in my country. Big ask that, you know. I had big dreams. You can't really do that. You can't, you can't, you can't, can't do everything, Susie. You can't do everything. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've just run out of time, unfortunately. I feel like I could speak to you all night about this. It's, it's fascinating. And um, I'm really, you know, I mean, I know that the word brave has been thrown around and you may or may not consider yourself brave, but I, I think you, you certainly are. It's made a, made a huge difference. And obviously, like you've, you've spoke about just, by you coming forward, it almost gives other people permission to do the same thing, which all all works. So thank you so much for speaking to me about it. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to point people towards? Where can they find out more information about you and your work? Uh, if you come to susiedent.com, my website, you'll find me there and you can find my emails there. Please reach out if you want to talk to me and you've had any experiences. Sometimes just having someone to talk to uh, and listen to you so you can be listened to and heard and recognised um, is that you have the first step on your healing journey. So you can reach out to me there on Facebook, same name, uh, Instagram, you'll find me. I'm all over the place. Please Beautiful. reach out. Though. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Susie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you. You too. Take care.